want to say something that's going to sound shocking and, frankly, a little hard to believe. But the more uh, treasure I discover in the sacred text, the more I am convinced that it is true, and it's this. That eschatology is love. Eschatology is love. There, I said it. What I mean is that the theology of the end times, the doctrine of last things, those prophecies, those visions, those apocalyptic nightmares, oracles of judgment, and the stunning previews of the kingdom and the wonders of the age to come are a manifestation of the love of God and his profound affection for his people. What I mean is the prophecies of Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and especially Revelation are in the Bible precisely because God loves you. I mean, it's not the only reason, but but they are there because God loves you. Of that, I am totally persuaded. The reason why I am is because God was not technically obligated to reveal the future, was he? He didn't have to do that. But he did do that precisely because he wants his people to know that every single moment of our lives is under his absolute undisputed dominion. Eschatology is love. Because the most loving gift that God can give is a glorious vision of his own authority and supremacy. And and very few places in scripture do that better than theatrical trailers of how the world is going to end and begin again. Eschatology is love. And by implication that means that it's meant to be understood It's designed to be enjoyed. It's intended to be applied to our lives. You understand eschatology is not there to confuse you, but to captivate you. It's not there for speculation. It's there for satisfaction. It's not there in the text merely to tantalize us with mystery, but to transform our lives by the majesty of Christ and conform us into his image. That's what it does. That's why it's there. And that is really, really kind of God to give that to us. My point is very simply this. If eschatology is love, and I am persuaded that it is, then God loves us a whole bunch. And Isaiah chapters 24 through 27. Because what it is is wall-to-wall eschatology. In fact, these chapters are among the most loving chapters in the entirety of the Bible because what they contained is nothing less than God's plan for the end of the age. And you remember that I'm calling these sermons the little apocalypse. The little apocalypse, which implies there's a big apocalypse, and there is one, and it is the book of Revelation. In fact, Isaiah chapters 24 through 27 is Revelation 6 through 22 squeezed into four chapters, and what it is is a high-def Blu-ray display of how God is going to uncreate the cosmos in his wrath and then recreate the cosmos in the glory of his kingdom. And if you think about it, it makes total logical sense that Isaiah would speak much about eschatology in his book, doesn't it? Because you understand at this very time, the people of Israel and Judah were in really serious trouble. And by that I mean Assyrian trouble. 
Assyria was in that day the heavyweight champion of the ancient Near East. And at this moment, they were at light speed taking over everything. They were expanding their kingdom at this moment, headed due west to Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And probably by the time this chapter was written, written, they had already leveled the northern kingdom of Israel to the ground in 722 B.C. And so you understand why the tiny little kingdom of Judah, they didn't stand a chance. They were never going to make, they were never going to survive an Assyrian invasion. And so in that moment, the people of Judah, they had a choice that they could make. They could live by faith or they could live by fear. But they couldn't have both. And so what did Yahweh do? But in his mercy, send Isaiah the prophet to shepherd his people. And with what I ask, what instrument did God use to shepherd his fearful apostate people? What did they need to hear? What was helpful for them? What was practical for them? What was the loving thing to give them with a gun to their head and their backs against the wall and their existence as a people hanging in the balance? What was it exactly that they needed to hear from the prophet? guessed it. It was eschatology. Because that's the loving thing to do. It's, it's loving to give eschatology in a crisis. It's not loving to give people vague assurances that things are going to be okay somehow. No, it is loving to give them captivating visions of how the Messiah is going to take back the planet that is rightfully his. That's exactly what Isaiah does. So let's go to the text. Let's go to the text. You're going to feel very loved by God this morning as you sample the feast and hear the hymn of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Here we go. This morning, I want you to see from our text three kingdom realities. Three kingdom realities that sustain the soul in the darkness of the present. That's where we're going. Three kingdom realities that sustain the soul in the darkness of the present. Kingdom reality, number one, the song of the kingdom. The song. Of the kingdom. I've said it before that chapters 24 through 27 make perfect logical sense in the sequence of Isaiah's book, don't they? They make perfect logical sense. You see, if the question of chapters 7 through 12 was, who should you trust? The answer given in chapters 13 through 23 is, Here's who you should not trust. Do not trust the nations. Do not trust them. Do do not fear them. Do not look to foreign pagan powers to do what God is alone able to do. Do not trust or fear the nations. And we spent five weeks in chapters 13 through 23, which were a series of poetic, prophetic sermons of judgment against the nations called oracles. But you see, the thing is, the reason why you don't need to fear or trust the nations is precisely because God is going to intervene in history in a way he has not done before. And two things are going to happen when he does. One, he is going to devastate the nations in the fires of his wrath. And two, he will then rule over the nations in the glory of his power. In other words, God will decreate creation in the coming tribulation, and then he will recreate creation in the glory of his kingdom. That's eschatology. That's coming in the future. 
And you see, chapter 25 makes perfect logical sense after 24, because if chapter 24 ends with a preview of Messiah's kingdom, and it does, chapter 25 then is the kind of song we will sing when we get into the kingdom. Look at the end of chapter 24. It's a picture of the future global kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 24, verse 23, it says, And the moon will be reproached, and the sun will be ashamed. Why? For Yahweh of hosts will rule on the mountain of Zion and in Jerusalem and before his elders in glory. And there it is. The literal, physical, visible Arrival of God himself to the planet to rule the world from a throne in Jerusalem. This is going to happen. And when it does happen, here is the kind of song that we'll sing together when it does. Chapter 25. Oh, Yahweh, my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Why? For you have done wonderful things, plans of old, fully reliable. You have appointed the city into a heap, the invincible city into rubble. The palace of foreigners is a city no more. It will never be built again. Therefore, a fierce people will glorify you. Cities of violent nations will fear you, for you have been a stronghold to the weak, a stronghold to the needy in their distress, a refuge from the rain, shade from the heat. Indeed, the blast of the violent is like rain against a wall, like heat. Heat in a drought, you subdue the uproar of the foreigners like heat in the shadow of a cloud. He, literally he, God, will humble the song of the violent. There it is. That's a, that's a celebratory song of apocalyptic grace. That's a, that's a beautiful ballad of eschatological joy is what that is. I mean, he wouldn't want to a Grammy by the standards of today. But trust me when I say when the king arrives, it will go platinum. And you understand the whole point, the reason why this song is here in the text is to captivate our imaginations and to help us see that all the atrocities and terrors of the world that we see every single day, one day, will not be that way. And the hymn begins with a bang in verse 1. Look at the text. Oh, Yahweh, my God, I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Stop there. Even just the first phrase, the first clause, the first six words in Hebrew, filled with theology. Filled with theology. And I want you to notice there, just in that little clause, the two names for God and the two expressions of worship. Two names for God, two expressions of worship. First, the names of God. You notice there in the text that the Lord is the subject, which makes sense. The song is addressed to him, which makes sense. And you understand that behind that title, Lord, there is a name. The sacred lofty, personal name of God that Jews today wouldn't even dare pronounce out of fear that they would blaspheme, and it is the name Yahweh. That's God's name. His personal covenant name. That's who he is. And that name, you understand, it means something. 
It's not just syllables and, and sounds. No, that name is profoundly theological. That name is literally built upon the Hebrew verb is, present tense is, which is why God called himself, I am who I am, because he always is and has been forever. He is infinite, eternal, uncaused, uncreated, and sovereign. To say the name of Yahweh is to declare his timeless eternality and his invincible sovereign authority all in one shot. Did you know that this morning? That when you read the Old Testament and you see Lord in all caps, there is a name behind that title. The sacred covenant name of God and embedded in that name is the infinite hope that God is with us. And everything is going according to plan. But two names for the price of one. Isaiah not only says Yahweh, but he says Yahweh, my God. My God, not just God, but my God. And the reason why that matters is because that language of mine, get this, refers to the greatest covenant promise that God ever made in the Bible. Namely, that he would be our God and that we would be his people. His chosen, adopted, beloved, reconciled people through the sacrifice of his son. And what that does, what that will do, is it will move us to worship. And notice there are the two expressions of worship in the song. Namely, to exalt and to praise. To exalt and to praise. And you know how worship works, don't you? You know how worship is kindled in the soul. We exalt what enthralls us. We praise what we prize. And notice, notice the two reasons why we will exalt and worship when we enter the kingdom. Look at verses 1 and 2. Here's why we will exalt and praise. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. Why will we do so? Number one, because you have done wonderful things. Plans of eternity fully reliable. And number two, because you have appointed the city into a heap, the invincible city into rubble. Again, remember what this is. This is a song that we will sing after Christ arrives, looking back on human history. And did you notice, verse one, what will fill our praises when we get to the kingdom are the wonders of God that he has performed in history. Don't you see, when Christ returns and builds his kingdom, it will be the ultimate hindsight 2020. We will all look back and we will see a flawless plan of redemption executed with perfect sovereign power, won't we? It looks messy now, but then it'll all make sense. Israel. The early church, the Middle Ages, the Renaissance, the, the Reformation, the Civil War, the Holocaust, the, the madness of our culture today, we will look back and we will see the wonders of God as he saved his elect and built his church and it will cause us to marvel. And what will simply blow our minds and what currently does blow our minds even now is that the wonders that God performs are the very things that he predestined to do before time began. Do you see that? Look at the text. It says, you have performed wonderful things. Here it is, plans of old, fully reliable. That word from of old means ancient. It means Long ago, it means before time. 
began. Because nothing God ever does is willy-nilly or aimless. God doesn't do anything by the seat of his pants. No, all things, he works all things out according to the counsel of his will. And you notice there that the text says that all of his plans are fully reliable. Literally, the Hebrew says something along the lines of reliably reliable or trustworthily trustworthy or, or faithfully faithful. These are not half-baked plans scribbled on the back of a napkin at the last minute for damage control. Rather, these are carefully calculated, invincible plans that are as ancient and as eternal and faithful as God himself. And in that day, we will worship him for that. We will exalt him for his sovereignty in that day. And we should do that every single day of our lives today because you understand that the sovereignty of God is the root of our joy and the death of our fears, isn't it? I mean, you understand that, right? That you can never contemplate too often or too deeply the absolute undisputed dominion of God over every detail in your lives because the plans of God are reliable they are invincible. They are eternal. They are, etern they, they are eternal. They are unshakable. They are irreversible, and they are indestructible. The second motivation in the kingdom that will drive us to praise and exalt God, notice, notice, look at verse 2. What will drive us to praise is that God will have shattered and destroyed the wicked cities and nations of the world. Look at the text. He says, for you have appointed the city into a heap, the invincible city into rubble. The palace of foreigners will be a city no more. It will never be rebuilt again. What is this? What is this? Clearly, it describes the future collapse and the future ruin of the godless cities of the world. But clearly, there is a particular city that Isaiah has in mind. Did you know that? Because it's singular. And the same city, it's interesting, is mentioned in chapter 24, verse 10. And it's also mentioned in chapter 26, verse 10, which means it is a city globally wicked and prominent enough to get three honorable mentions in Isaiah's little apocalypse. And it is so wicked and it is so evil that in the kingdom we will sing together about its annihilation. And I don't think it's Vegas. I think it's Babylon. I think it's Babylon. The reason I say that is because Revelation 17 and 18 are clear and unmistakable. In the future, a revived version of Babylon will emerge on the scene and it will be the hub of a one-world economy and a one-world religion and it will slaughter without mercy anyone who does not bow down and play by their rules. It will be the ultimate dystopia, the ultimate terror and the sum of all fears. And yet, when we gather around the campfire, as it were, to sing in the kingdom, Included in the lyrics will be the destruction of the most wicked city in history into a pile of smoldering bricks, never to be built again. That's verse 2. And that will drive us to praise. And so you can see it, can't you? You can totally tell why it's loving of God to tip his hand and reveal the future. That is loving of God, isn't it? 
why it's loving to give us the songs, the lyrics of the song that we will sing in the kingdom ahead of time. It's loving because in the text, we see God solve the biggest problems of life and sin and evil and pain and history. And that reminds us that things will not always go as they go now. Think about it. There is not one crisis, not one crisis happening in the world that won't eventually be reversed and overturned in the kingdom, like our crumbling economy, for one, our corrupt government, for another, our chaotic culture, our crime-ridden society, critical race theory, the climate change propaganda shoved down our throats and the creepy transgender agenda with which the culture is desperately trying to indoctrinate our children and our grandchildren. And yet one day, all of that will be over because King Jesus will obliterate it out of its existence and we will celebrate and sing together about its eradication in the kingdom. I guess my point is eschatology is love precisely because it gives us perspective. Things will not always go as they go now. And yet one of the things also included in God's plan for the future, get this, is that we will sing. One of the things we will sing about is the salvation of wicked nations that we would have never even imagined could possibly have been saved. Look at verses 3 through 5. These are kingdom lyrics that we're going to sing together as God's people. The wicked, the world will watch the wicked city of verse 2 crumble to the ground. And notice, notice how the nations will respond. Therefore, a fierce people will glorify you. The cities of violent nations will fear you. Why? For you have been a stronghold to the weak, a stronghold to the needy in their distress, a refuge from the rain, shadow from the heat. Indeed, the blast of the violent is like rain against a wall, like heat in, the, in a drought. You subdue the uproar of foreigners like heat in the shadow of a cloud. He, literally God, will humble the song. Of the violent. There's a lot going on. There's a lot of moving parts there. But what is clear, what is clear is that even the most violent and brutal nations on the planet one day will yield their lives to Yahweh in submission and faith. That's what that just described. Notice here in verse 3 the parallels. There's fierce peoples and violent nations talking about the same thing. And at this very moment today, they oppose God and they oppress their own people. But one day they will glorify Yahweh and they will fear Yahweh. Do you see that? Which means they will prize God for his beauty. And they will tremble before God for his majesty. Just think of it, Buddhist and Muslim nations will renounce their false gods and yield their lives to Yahweh. Pagan and atheist nations will collectively repent and give their allegiance to Jesus Christ. This is coming in the future. I mean, this would, this would be shocking for the Jews to hear. And when we think about the condition of our world today, it's also shocking for us to hear. And yet it's not too terribly surprising, is it? Because God did, did he not, inscribe 
the names of his elect in the Lamb's book of life from every nation before the foundation of the world. And here we see them in the future prizing the God they currently oppose. And notice, notice, this is very interesting. Notice what Isaiah says, broke these wicked nations. What will break them in the future? Because the question is, why the change of heart? Why the change of mind? What exactly will they see that will move them to repentance? Look at verses 5 and 6. For you, God, have been a stronghold to the weak, a stronghold to the needy and their distress, a refuge from the rain, shadow from the heat. Indeed, the blast of the wicked is like rain against the wall, like the heat in a drought. You subdue the uproar of the foreigners like heat in the shadow of a cloud. He will humble the song of the violent. Do you see what the nations will see that will move them to repentance? God is going to intervene one day. And he's going to interrupt human history through the return of his son. And those nations, some of those nations, not immediately slaughtered by the king when he arrives, they will watch King Jesus care for his people like a shadow from the heat and a shelter from the rain. And they will be so moved by the affectionate display and love of God and care for his people that not only will they lay down their weapons of rebellion and surrender, they will yield their lives in submission and faith. That's what this is. It's conversions. That's in the song. They will sing together in the kingdom. And you understand, don't you, why? Why is it that God pre-released these lyrics to the song through Isaiah centuries before the events ever even happened? You know why he did? Because it was loving of him to do so, wasn't it? And, And do you not see here the beautiful evangelistic strategy lurking in the text. There's an evangelistic strategy. This, this is really interesting. You see, violent nations in the future will be moved and melted to repentance by the sovereign mercy of the king for his people, and they will want that for themselves. That's the issue. And you see, you just wonder if that's one of the ways that we should talk to the unbelievers in our lives. If we should just openly proclaim and declare the staggering sovereign mercy and kindness of God that he has for us. Us, who should be in hell right now, and yet, by the sovereign intruding grace of God alone, here we stand as adopted sons and daughters of the living God and heirs of salvation. My point is, my point is, find a way. Create opportunities. Make every excuse you can to tell unbelievers in your life about the unbelievable, staggering mercy and kindness of God for sinners like us. Literally make them run out of reasons for not loving and trusting the Lord Jesus Christ and give them every reason to yield their lives in repentance and faith. That brings us to the second kingdom reality. The second kingdom reality that sustains the soul in the darkness of the present. Number two, the feast of the kingdom. 
There was the song of the kingdom. Now here is the feast of the kingdom. And if you haven't noticed already, food, food is a big deal in the Bible, isn't it? In fact, food seems to be pretty much present at every single major event in redemptive history. There was food in the beginning in the garden. The exodus was commemorated with a meal, was it not? Jesus ate dinner with his disciples just before he was arrested. And when Christ comes again at the end of history, get this, he will inaugurate the grand opening of his kingdom with none other than a global feast and lavish banquet to which all of the nations of the world are invited. Look at verse 6. And Yahweh of hosts will make for all of the peoples on this mountain a lavish feast, a banquet of aged wine, a lavish feast of the finest foods, aged wine refined with age. I don't know if you take that literal, but I sure do. And I hope you do too. Because over and over and over again, the apostles and prophets make mention of a, of a lavish feast and an eschatological banquet scheduled in the future. Think about it, Luke 13, 29. Christ says that people will come from the east and west and north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom. Christ said in Luke 22 that he would eat and drink with us in the kingdom of God. Christ, on more than one occasion, described the kingdom as none other than a wedding feast. Revelation 19 talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb. How many texts do there have to be before we start smelling the feast? And after a while, you get the impression that this is not symbolic language, but that there will actually be some kind of inaugurating feast and banquet to which all of the nations of the world are summoned. I think that's what this is. It's on the calendar. It's on the schedule. And if you are in Christ, you will be there to enjoy it. And notice incredibly in verse 6, Yahweh himself will make the feast. I think this is Christ. He, he will be the chef, as it were, the host, the guest of honor, the king presiding over the celebration. And, of course, don't miss in the text the intentionally appetizing way the feast is described. Literally, the Hebrew says it will be a lavish feast, a feast of lavish things, a banquet of aged wine, a lavish feast of the finest foods, aged wine, refined with age. You get the clear sense of quality and quantity, don't you, do you not? You get the idea of something gourmet and delectable and luxurious and abundant. There are no hot pockets here. There are no microwave burritos here. Only the fine cuisine fit for a king and the people that he loves. And of course, there's plenty of food to go around because you notice that this feast is for all of the peoples, all of the nations. This is a global banquet for all the nations on the face of the planet to which they are invited. This is after Christ returns. They will be invited to this. And, and notice, notice finally the venue. I mean, where do you hold such an event? What is the, think about it this way, what is the only place that makes sense in the context of redemptive history? It has to be Mount Zion in Jerusalem. It just has to be. That's exactly where it is. 
Chapter 24, 23 just said, Yahweh of hosts will rule on the mountain of Zion and in Jerusalem. And here again is that mountain. And so when Christ says in Luke 22 that he will eat with us in the kingdom, here is the event about which he speaks. Which is why in all seriousness, we eat together at family meetings. This is why. This is why we do hospitality. This is why we do dinner at, at small groups and at theology seminars. Not merely to bribe you to come, but because when we gather together and eat, it is a foretaste and preview of the very banquet that we will enjoy in the kingdom of the Messiah. That's why there's theology driving our food here. Let that be said. My question is, question is, will I see you at the banquet? Is there a spot at the table reserved for you? Will you be there at the feast, sitting at the table, dining with the redeemed from all of the ages? Will you be there at the feast? I'm asking in all seriousness, are you going to be there? Because you know, don't you, you know the only way to get your name on the guest list, don't you? It is by the blood of the lamb alone. This meal is not cheap. It came with a cost. The admission fee to get into the kingdom and eat at this meal is nothing less than the sin-bearing death of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You remember what, you, you have to be born again, don't you? Isn't that what Christ said to Nicodemus? Unless, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. And so my question for you is this morning, in all seriousness, have you been bought with the blood of the lamb? Have you been born again? Have you truly yielded to the king in repentance and faith? Because you know there is still time. There is still room at the table. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? You here in this room who are distant from Christ, who have rejected Christ, who are shaking your fist at Christ, who are bored with Christ, who have no interest in Christ, who would rather be anywhere than here. Can you hear me? There is still room at the table for a limited time. Now is the moment. Now is the moment to repent and to yield to King Jesus. I beg you, don't be a fool. Don't be a fool. Smell the feast through the text. Hear the summons of the Lamb. Heed the call of the King to dine at his table. This is real. This is real. But speaking of eating, notice in verses 7 and 8 what the song declares that Yahweh will eat. What Yahweh is going to eat in the kingdom to come. Look at the text. And he, that is God, will eat, will swallow up on this mountain the covering which is over all the peoples and the veil which is over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe tears from every face. And the reproach of his people he will remove from all of the earth. For Yahweh has spoken. 
You know, I like samples. Samples are cool. I like Costco samples. You like Costco samples? Walking through, pushing your cart, allured by tasty treats at every turn. You know what I'm talking about? Chips and salsa over here. Seven-layer dip over here. Chicken nuggets. Focaccia bread. Pizza pockets. It's a very delicious and powerful experience to go to Costco during sample time. But I just want to break the news to you that those ladies aren't actually being nice to you. They're not, they're not actually being kind to you. You see, there is an angle in an, and an agenda in their samples. And you know what the angle is? The, an, the angle is the sample creates a hunger for more. Their agenda, as they give their barely audible sales pitch through their masks, is <laughs> what they want you to do is they want you to buy the package as a whole, don't they? That's exactly what Isaiah is doing. He is just giving you little eschatological foretaste and samples so that you want the entire feast, so that you not only want to be there in the future, but that you live your lives now in light of what God has planned for the future. And did you notice the two objects that Isaiah says that God will swallow up in the age to come? Number one, he will swallow up the covering which blinds the peoples of the earth, whatever that means. And number two, he will swallow up death forever. What is this? What is this covering that God will swallow up? Because I just need you to know there is right now a covering and a veil draped over the world. And I believe it to be the covering and veil of sin and darkness and the blindness of unbelief. You understand that there is a covering that shrouds and darkens the nations to the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. I think this is what he's talking about. That's the world we live in now. The covering is over us. The veil is here. The curse is not yet broken. The, the, the curse has not yet been lifted. The spell is not broken. But one day in the future, at the return of Christ, he will open wide his mouth and he will swallow the curse and he will gulp it down and he will make it disappear forever. That's what swallow means. To personally crush beneath, between his teeth and devour it and consume it and make it totally disappear. When he's finished, he'll lick the platter clean and there will be no more curse, no more darkness, no more virus or scourge of sin infecting and poisoning the nations. Can you imagine a world without a curse? Can you imagine a planet in which paradise is regained? Can, can we even fathom what it will be like to live on a planet in which that, that is no longer under the blinding spell and power of the evil one? This is coming in the future. And this was the loving of God to show us this. But notice the second object, the second object there in verse 8, swallowed by God and the kingdom to come, and it is the great terror, an enemy of the human race. Look at the text. And he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe tears from every face, and the reproach of his people he will remove from all the earth. And there it is. One day, hear me now, listen very carefully, one day God will swallow up death forever. 
meaning he will personally destroy it. And he will make death disappear, never to be seen again one day. Death will die when Yahweh eats it for breakfast. And he will devour it, and he will consume it, and he will gulp it down, as it were, and he will personally eradicate it and banish it out of existence forever. The Apostle Paul said this about the the reign of Christ in the future. He said, for he must reign until he puts all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is... You understand one day death will have a funeral. And if you are in Christ, you will be there. Not to weep for the victim, but to worship the victor. This changes things, doesn't it? This alters our perspectives, does it not? It should, it has to. I've said this before, I'm glad to say it again. How you die and when you die is irrelevant. It's meaningless. It's totally arbitrary how you die and when you die. Why? Because in Christ, death is not the final word, is it? At the end of the age, the king will reach his arm down into the throat of death and he will snatch us out of his belly and raise us from the dead. And then he will give death A death blow and death will be no more and we will never die again. Don't you see the kind of song we need to sing in a world of crisis and fear is a song like this. When sin will be slain and death will be defeated and we will dine with the king and the splendor of his kingdom. Let me ask you point blank. Do you fear death this morning? Do you still fear death? Do you still fear that which the Lord Jesus will crush between his teeth and obliterate out of existence? Do you still fear the ancient foe who, as we speak, is walking to his own execution? Do you still live as though this mortal life is all there is? Don't you see, a snake with no fangs poses no harm. A cat with no claws has nothing to scratch you with. And in Christ, death, defanged and declawed, poses no threat nor power to the soul. And what does that produce in our lives but radical hope and invincible faith and unconquerable joy? But you saw him, didn't you? And I guess I'll just close with this. You saw him, didn't you? The the tears in the text. Some of the most cherished words ever spoken in history, aren't they? Beloved by God's people may be recited at every burial and funeral that has ever happened. Look at verse 8 again. He will swallow up death forever. Here it is. And the Lord, Yahweh, will wipe tears You thought that was in the book of Revelation, didn't you? And you're right, because it's there twice. But where John got it from was the prophet Isaiah. And you have to understand here, the point is not the tears necessarily, 
The point is the proximity to God himself. You see, this right here is what the death of Christ was designed to secure. Christ did not die merely so that you could get your sins forgiven and then just go on about your day. Rather, he died that God may dwell with men, that God may be reconciled to men. He died to secure spatial proximity and unhindered delight in God forever and ever and ever. And in the age to come, God will be close to us, so close, in fact, that he will wipe every tear from our eyes. Some of you have shed many tears in this life, haven't you? And there are many more tears to come in this life, and yet there is such a thing as the last tear shed. And it's this moment right here. And those final tears that we shed will be dried and dabbed and removed by God himself. This is loving of us, loving to us, isn't it? What is this? This is collateral, isn't it? This is all collateral, meaning this is the pledge of God given to us that gives us the guarantee that everything God has ever promised is so certain and guaranteed that the only logical response is to live our lives radically for Jesus Christ. Because what do we have to lose? What do we have to lose? And living radically for the king. Because anything we do lose, anything we do suffer for the sake of Christ will be repaid 10,000 times over in the kingdom of his son. You understand this is love. Eschatology is love. And it is love precisely because the most loving thing that God can do to sustain the soul in the darkness of the present, is give us a glorious vision of himself ruling and reigning in the future. Let's give thanks to him for his love. Lord, Lord, thank you for the apocalyptic. Thank you for eschatology. In the study of the end. And I pray, O oh Lord, I pray that we would listen to the voice of the prophets and less to the voice of the news. That we would use a, a kingdom reflexivity, that when we see all the terrors and atrocities and things that make us angry in our world today, that we would immediately, immediately look forward to the time when those things will no longer be. And Lord, I am persuaded that that, 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 doesn't, that, doesn't, that doesn't hinder our ministry potential. It heightens our ministry potential. Oh, Lord, I am persuaded that the more we know what you have planned for the future, the more effective we will be for the ministry of the present. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would make these people a bold people. Your servant Paul says that he used great boldness because of his hope. Oh, Lord, may we be a bold people because of the hope that you have given to us in your Son. And it's in his name we pray.